0: UNC Student Radio, it's Saturday, June twenty fifth, two 2011. Happy birthday, Carly Simon, Tim Finn, Jimmy, J.J. Walker, Eddie Floyd, Ricky Gervais, and playwright Michelle Tremblay. Birthday memories for George Abbott, George Orwell, Sidney Lamette, and Harold Melvin. Check the UNC-SR Facebook page and keep listening. Dulcet tones of Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band, opening the show as they always do here at the University of Northern Colorado. The program being Dave's Gone By, our 357th episode of the show. And we're calling this one The Light Fantastic, because we're going to have a fantastic time talking to someone whose business is light, and light specifically on theater and also opera and dance. His name is Richard Pilbro, and he has been doing lighting design and also, for the past few years, designing theaters and figuring out how all the tech goes together to create new theater buildings. Plus, he's worked on Broadway, he's worked regionally all over the place, he started this big old theater theater technology company in England that's been running for decades. So it's going to be really exciting. He'll be calling in from England at about 10.30 Mountain Time. So very excited to talk to him about his career, About because we've had lots of people on Dave's Gone By, lots of guests who are involved in the arts, especially music and theater. And we have a lot of actors and directors and people and playwrights too who – kind of put the show together before it physically goes out there on stage. Well, directors obviously are are working it while it's on stage. But it has never been certainly my talent to understand the rudiments of the visuals, of the plastics, of the light, the sound, the set. I I love to see them, and I can, I guess, kind of criticize them after seeing – hundreds and thousands of shows after all these years. But ask me to do it. I mean, give me a paintbrush or a gobo or a spot or a lighting board and I'll be like, ah, I'll be like a four year old. I won't know remotely what I'm doing. So it will be kind of nice to talk to someone for whom it's second nature. For someone who's been doing lighting design and projections and things like that since the 1950s, so aside from that, I'm also told that he's a, a really marvelous and interesting speaker, and he's got that English accent going. So you know, just just to listen to an English accent on a Saturday morning is going to be great, great fun. So that's. One thing we will be doing on this light, fantastic edition of Dave's Gone By. We'll also be going inside Broadway for Broadway News. We'll be, um, I was on another radio program this past week. I'm, I'm a guest there oh, about once every two or three months or so with Bob Cudmore on WVTL out of Rochester, New York. And uh, Bob ...is a theater fan, like I am, and, but he's all the way up in Rochester, so he only gets to New York City once or twice a year. So he relies on me sometimes to give him the lowdown and the scoop of what's going on on Broadway on the Rialto. So this being a week or two after the Tony Awards, Bob wanted me on to talk about Spider-Man and all the ramifications of, well, it finally opened about two weeks ago... They had a little moment on the Tony Awards broadcast, but now, okay, they're open. Julie Tamor's out of the picture. They've got their real reviews out of the way. They've shown themselves on the Tony's Bono and the Edge were there. So what's up with the show? So I went on Bob Cudmore's radio program, Coffee with Cudmore on WVTL to talk about it. And, uh, I thought I, <laughs> you know, sometimes I go on there and he's taping in the morning, which is really an early in the morning for me out in Colorado because he's up in New York. So sometimes I'm, I'm barely awake. And I'm like, well, you know, theater's cool and some things are opening and i kind of like to tell you about them. And sometimes, I don't know, maybe I have a good cup of coffee or something and I'm on. I think this week I was on. So check it out when I'm talking about Spider-Man, the big Broadway musical on Bob Cudmore's show. I'm going to play that audio on the Inside Broadway segment today. And also, we'll be saying a fond farewell to the late actor Peter Falk. Of course, best known for Columbo, but also The Princess Bride, and a couple of John Cassavetes films. He died a couple of days ago at age 83. And, you know, gotta say a farewell to Peter Falk. We will also be doing some music, of course. We always play Music on Dave's Gone By. So our Saturday segue will be songs that involve light, because we will have lagging designer Richard Pilbrow on, and also our Bob Dylan segment. Bob Dylan, sooner and later, will be about light as well. Songs of Dylan that mention light in an interesting way. I'll also be continuing my wrap up of uh, my trip to Italy. A couple of actually, it's a month ago. Can't believe it. Was, it was a month ago. I was in Rome and Florence and Venice and Pisa and got to tell you a little bit about it last week. Hope to tell you some more this week. And last but not least, finally, uh, oh, ooh, 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 gosh, I'm doing so much on this show. We're also going to be doing a small Saturday, Dave's Gone by Farewell to saxophonist Clarence Clemens of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, who passed this week as well. So we'll be playing a couple of my favorite Springsteen songs that uh, showcase Clarence Clemens, the big man. But beyond all that, also in the program, as we do every week, we'll be hearing from Rabbi Saul Solomon with his rabbinical reflection. He'll be talking about yet another person who died, they're coming in clusters, I guess, Ryan Dunn. He was a star. On the MTV show *Jackass*, also the movies that they did after that. I think he was also on MTV's *Viva La Bam*. Anyway, uh, he died this week on his own hand by getting really, really drunk and driving really, really fast, and ended up killing himself and another passenger in the car. So Rabbi Sol Solomon has some thoughts about that in his rabbinical reflection later in the show. So, my goodness, what a jam-packed episode of Dave's Gone By this will be. Richard Pilbrow going inside Broadway, saying farewell to Peter Falk, talking about Spider-Man, Rabbi Saul on Ryan Dunn, Bob Dylan sooner, and later my talking about Italy. But first, let us get to our Saturday segue where we play... A bunch of songs about the same topic. This topic, as I said, being dedicated to our guest in just about 20 minutes, uh, Richard Pilbrow, lighting designer. We will see things, hopefully, in a different light. my Beth Orton there with It's Not the Spotlight. In our Saturday segue here on Dave's Gone By, we're playing some songs that have to do with light. We heard three of them, including the Bangles, a title track on their different light LP, and then Led Zeppelin, of course, in the light. I think that's from Physical Graffiti. Um, I think so. Anyway, and Beth Orton, It's Not the Spotlight. Wanted to tell you a couple of things before we dive back into the Saturday segue. First of all, if you want to write to me and let me know your thoughts about the show or make some requests, because we will be here until one in the afternoon, and we're here every week on UNC radio from ten in the morning until one in the afternoon, the email address is davesgoneby at com, and that's Dave like my name, D A V E S, goneby at com. You can also find out more about this program by going to Dave'sGoneBy.com, And not only does it give you the whole history of the show and what to look forward to on upcoming programs, but uh, you get the archives there. There's hundreds of shows, because we've been doing this since October of 2002. And you can listen anytime absolutely for free. You can hear all our different guests, all the, the music we played, the comedy stuff that we've done, just by going to By. So do check that out. And also, if you are interested in the playlist for this particular episode of the program, do check our MySpace page. Just go to MySpace.com and search for Dave's Gone By. And uh, we update it, I guess, every 15, 20 minutes and let you know uh, the artists that we're playing and also what's going to be on the show. Well, as I promised, in just a few minutes, we should have with us Broadway and regional theatre and London theatre lighting designer and theatre tech guru, Richard Pilbrow, with us on the phone. That's why we're playing light songs, and that's why I'm going to continue with our segue from a beautiful piece from the great 1984 Broadway musical Sunday in the Park with George. This is Color and Light. Order... Design Composition
1: Tone Form Symmetry Balance More red And a little more red
2: Blue, 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 blue Even, even good Bum, 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 bum bum. More
3: red, more blue,
4: more beer,
0: more light, color and light, there's only color and light, yellow and white, just blue and yellow and white, the airness see what I need
3: no look of a fairness that's done with green and joined with orange
5: nothing seems to fit me right the less I wear the more comfortable I feel more rouge George is very special Maybe I am just not special enough for him. If my legs were longer, if my bust was smaller, if my hands were graceful, if my waist was thinner, if my hips were flatter, if my voice was warm, if I... I'd only want me born. If I was a folly girl, I wouldn't like it much. Married men and stupid boys, and too much smoke, and all that noise, and all that color and light.
0: Aren't you proper today, miss? Your parasol so properly cocked, your bustle so perfectly upright, and you, sir. So black, so black to you perhaps, so red to me. None of
4: the others worked at night. So
0: composed for a Sunday. How do you
4: work without the right, bright, white right, light? How the George?
0: Red, 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 orange, red, red, orange, orange, pick a blue, pick a red, pick a orange from the blue, green, blue, green, blue, green, circle on the violet, diagonal, 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 diagonal <laughs> no, no no yellow comma, yellow comma, nom 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 nom. Still sitting red That perfume blue All night blue the window shut dot, 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 Sitting, dot, dot, Waiting, dot, dot, Getting fat, 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 fat More yelling, dot, 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 waiting to go up, 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 No, 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 George Finish the hat, finish the hat Do finish the hat first hat, 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 hat. in here It's
4: hot in here
0: Color and light indeed. Mandy Patinkin there with Bernadette Peters from the 1984 Pulitzer winning Broadway masterpiece Sunday in the park with George music and lyrics, of course, by Stephen Sondheim with a book by James Lapine. We're talking Broadway here. We're talking color and light with someone who knows more about it than most people alive quite honestly. Um, Our guest on the phone calling all the way from New Hebrides, Scotland. So I'm really sorry. And this is the furthest distance phone call that we've ever had on the show. Something of a milestone. Uh, He has designed more than 500 productions worldwide. Uh, He's the winner of a Drama Desk Award for Lighting for that great revival of Showboat a few years ago. He's also won an Aga Critics Award and a Dora Award up in Canada. And uh, let's see, back in 1957, he founded a company called Theater Projects that is still going strong and that uh, we will talk about. Plus, he's the author of several major, major books on theater and lighting design, including stage lighting, stage lighting design, and his brand new book called A Theater Project, A Backstage Adventure. So please welcome the very adventurous Richard Pilbrow to the neighborhood. Mr. Pilbrow, welcome. Thank you very much. Am am I pronouncing, is it Pilbrow or Pilbrow? Uh, It's Pil,
3: that's an interesting question, I'm not sure, but let's call it Pilbrow. My father never made up his mind.
0: Oh, okay, that's, that's, um, so I guess the first thing that I want to ask is, at what point did you realize that not only that you were into the theater, but that you were into the whole backstage idea of how it looked and how it seemed and how to create those images?
3: Well, I was a, a, child, I think probably age of 12, 13, I became fascinated with everything to do with backstage in the theater.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, I originally wanted to be a director and spend all my childhood doing theater in, you know, amateur theater and school theater and stuff. And then had the great good fortune to become a stage manager, very young, straight out of drama school. And from that I said, segwayed into stage lighting. And it was that time in England, we're talking 1957, mm-hmm. it was a whole new profession. It hadn't become established in Britain. So I was one of the the first people in the field and it was a happy accident of timing.
0: Actually, uh, if, if I can just break in here for a moment, when you say that it was brand new in 1957 as, as a profession, what did people do before then? I mean, shows had to be lit. Back in the 1890s, back in the 1920s, and, you know... Yeah, sure.
3: Well, it was different in, in England and America were both different. In England, basically, the director used to light shows, helped by the electrician. In America, there was a different tradition where the scene designer was responsible for the lighting. And so, as... Lighting got a little more complicated in the 30s, before World War II. Mm-hmm. It gradually became a speciality, and the first ever modern lighting designers were found in the States, people like Abe Fader and Gene Rosenthal. But it came to England sort of 20 years later, and I was lucky to be one of the first.
0: Wow. And, and what, in other words, with people who ha- aren't familiar, let's say, with broadway design at all except having maybe seen a broadway show or a show on tour how do you describe what you do i mean they would say well everything has to be lit you have to focus uh, spotlights and and just put lighting on the stage how do you describe lighting for theater and dance and and things like that
3: well that's a real problem for (laughs) the lighting designer i mean basically one's job is to Uh, learn exactly what the show is all about and what the director and the scene designer want to achieve with the production. And then it's our role as the lighting designer to sort of envisage how the play should be lit. And lighting is more than just illumination. It's more than just having enough light so you can see the actors. Light can also act as light does in nature to affect the emotions you know it can make you cheerful it can make you gloomy Uh, and Mm -hmm. lighting design tries to use these qualities of light to help telling the story of the show make a musical more exciting more dramatic and whatever you're you're trying to help the whole production communicate to its audiences
0: when you were learning your craft in the 1950s was there ever a show or a tech rehearsal or even just in the early days of putting the thing together when you had some kind of revelation where you, you put three light things together and you saw something on the stage and you just were knocked out and it's like oh i wow i didn't realize dot 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 <laughs> well, well i
3: think probably two shows one was um, west side story when it was done in london it was originally lit by gene rosenthal And I must say, I saw that. I was a kid, I was at drama school, and that absolutely knocked me out. I thought, my God, this is astonishing.
1: Hmm.
3: And then another, a play in London lit by the founder of English Lighting Design, a man named Joe Davis. That had light coming in through a window that sort of was absolutely the most beautiful thing you ever saw in your life, as as if the sun was shifting across Uh, The clouds were shifting across the sun. It was quite magical. And that, again, made me sit there and think, my goodness, lighting has got an extraordinary ability to affect the
0: emotions and help tell stories. I have to say... I uh, caught caught the bug. Well, yeah. I mean, I have to say that I didn't really notice lighting design per se as a a beautiful art form until I was watching a show of yours off-Broadway Oh gosh, must be fifteen years ago or so. You did a, a John Guare play called Four Bab- No, it's on Broadway. Sorry, uh, called Four Baboons Adoring the Sun. And I ha- remember
3: it well. Yeah,
0: hated the play. Sorry to say, but I remember <laughs> the- <laughs> there was a scene uh, with the sun or some kind of sun rising, and it was just so ravishingly beautiful that I just oh, sat- uh- yeah. Sorry i'm impressed thank you <laughs> yeah well i had a look at something in the play I, you know i stuck my watch so i was like whoa oh <laughs> there's something pretty on the stage let me see that all oh, right but, but it was beautiful i mean it, it was really and then i said "Who?" Oh. i never looked in the playbill or anything for the lighting designer i never really with all due respect noticed and then that day oh. i was like wow who lit this and it, it was richard pilbro and you've also done uh, you know, a f- you haven't had that many credits on Broadway, which surprises no, me.
3: Absolutely no. I um, mean, I spent the first, you know, two thirds of my career in in London,
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, and listened in a huge number of shows in the West End. And then I was involved with Laurence Olivier when the National Theatre Company began, and I was his lighting director for many years.
0: All right, stop right there, and please. To well, 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 um, to um, to the well Richard, uh, Richard, if I if I may, stop right there please, and you were uh, Laurence Olivier's lighting designer. What was that like? What was he like to work with? What did he demand?
3: Oh, wow. Um, Well, uh, it's hard to find words to describe him. He was the most extraordinary Uh, person, a great human being, had enormous humility, as well as being the greatest actor of probably the 20th century. He was an absolutely charming, charming man. Very demanding. He knew exactly what he wanted. Mm -hmm. Very demanding, and he pushed everyone on the team to, you know, give of their best. But he was also an extraordinarily sweet guy. He... You know, he ran the National Theatre Company for many years, and he knew the names of everyone on the staff. And not only the names of everyone on the staff, mm-hmm. he knew the names of their wives and their children. And he'd sit in the canteen, you know, uh, and chat with anyone who happened to sit next to him. He was
0: he was an extraordinary man. That's that's lovely. great privilege to work for him. That's that's that's. Terrific. I mean, it, you know, everybody says you want to hear um, the dirt and the gossip and the TMZ kind of thing, but I, I like hearing good things about famous people. As a matter of fact, you worked, well, not, well, kind of with, I mean, everybody's collaborative in the theater, so you lit um, a Broadway show that had Elizabeth Taylor in it uh, about three decades ago, and everybody had warned you that Elizabeth Taylor would be... Really difficult and a pain in the ass. And if she didn't like you or didn't like what you were doing, you know, you were you were gone. But uh, your experience was good. I heard.
3: Oh, it was extraordinary. Yes, I was warned that uh, she had demanded the quote best designer in London, and they picked me for some reason. And I was told she was extremely difficult and would be very very fussy. And so I was pretty nervous about the whole thing. And we lit uh, the first. Tech started and we did the first act and then we broke for dinner and not a word of complaint out of her. In fact, dinner break, she strolled down into the orchestra and came up to my desk and she said, where do you eat in this place? So I said, well, I and the boys are going over to the pub over the road. She said, could I join you? wow i said sure <laughs> so every night for i think four or five nights we would troop over to the pub right next to the stage door of the theater and she was a smasher i mean she had this all roaring with laughter and she'd great fun with all the guys it was that's
0: a terrific experience that, that, and you know again it's, it's a story that you like hearing about uh, <laughs> uh but, but, okay I certainly enjoyed it <laughs> okay but 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 to be fair let let's let's get the the dark side then were there any actors or directors that you worked with that you 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 had to muster every bit of your strength not to have a light fall and crash down on their heads
3: <laughs> well now you're getting into delicate de- de- area aren't you uh-huh. uh, yeah i've had some i've had some rough times there were some times where uh the actor doesn't like what she's doing and can be very difficult and temperamental. But on the whole, you cope with those things. Um, probably my trickiest moment was I was very, very, very young at the time. as I lit a show... A breath show with Peter O'Toole in it, and Peter had just become a big star. Mm -hmm. And the whole show was using projected scenery, which means you have to light it very carefully uh, because if you over light the show, all the projection, all the projected scenery disappears. It's washed out. Mm -hmm.
1: Anyway,
3: Peter got very impatient about this because he thought he wasn't well enough lit. He wanted a follow spot and stuff like that. And he got really angry and uh, demanded at one time that I be replaced. (laughs) And uh, the director said, uh, Richard, what are you going to do about it? And I stood up. I was very young. I was like 20-something at the time. I was really frightened. And I stood up and I said, "Um, uh, Bill, if Mr. O'Toole would pay a little more attention to his performance, and less to the illumination, we might all be more confident of success. Whoa! <laughs> that was a long, long pause. And the director, thank God, said, get on with it, Peter, and Peter did. And it all <laughs> went very well from then on.
0: You had a so pair of a- stones <laughs> on you, my friend. You sure, oh my gosh. What got into you? Full <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, uh, Richard, are you on a cell phone by any chance? Because we're we're getting no. Some... I'm on
3: a I'm on a landline, but it may not be the best quality because I am an awful long way from civilization.
0: <laughs> well, what are you doing in New Hebrides anyway?
3: Well, it is uh, very very long time ago. In fact, over fifty years ago, I came up here on holiday and fell in love with the place, and I bought a little ruined farmhouse. Oh. Uh, which took about ten years to build, and now it's here. And I and my children and grandchildren try to enjoy it every summer. And it's a great escape from Broadway, I can tell you. <laughs> it's like the opposite, I have no company here but sheep. Well, and a wife and friends.
0: <laughs> you need to qualify that. You know, a man with no yes, company absolutely. but sheep is. A little, little, little scary there. We're talking with Richard Pilbrow on Dave's Gone By um, here uh, from the University of Northern Colorado all the way up to Scotland. But but let's not give the idea that you are just sort of sitting back in Scotland completely retired. I mean, you're still very much working. Am I right? Uh, Dave, I'm having a reception problem. Yeah. Can you repeat that? I'm saying you're, that you're not retired. You're still very much active and working.
3: Yeah, I'm sort of. I think you'd call it semi-retired, but I'm still lucky. I still like the odd show, and I'm still involved with theatre projects. Uh, the company that I began that spends most of it. We spend most of our time designing theatre building. Ooh. And we we can do that all around the world.
0: Well, and may I'm I ask? Still him. Involved to a certain extent. Sorry, you're you're really. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think the sheep are getting in the way of the, the signal here. But I do want to ask since your new book is called A Theater Project, A the Backstage Adventure, which is all about that company that you founded, Theater, A That's Theater correct. Project, the initial uh, startup of it was about being a lighting, design, and rental company. But what is, what is the journey of, of Theater Project? You there? Uh Yes, I I lost you a moment. Okay. Um, If you could tell us briefly the the theater project story. In other words, you founded your own lighting design and rental company, and then what happened? And why did you leave the National to do it?
3: Basically, because I started wanting to be a lighting designer before there was really such a profession in Britain, I had to find a way of earning a living, uh, because nobody would actually pay me to do it. So I started this little company and we rented out second-hand cheap lighting equipment. Mm -hmm. And I provided my services for nothing. Wow! Then we were very, very lucky and began to do quite well. Mm -hmm. So we expanded and went into the sound design in the theater, which again was just beginning in Britain. And then with a great stroke of good fortune, I was uh, asked to... Come to Broadway, Uh, Tony Walton, the designer, invited me to come to do a show on Broadway. And uh, this was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, the original production. Huh. I I
1: didn't know that. And uh, I
3: was the projection consultant. I designed a method of projecting scenery, which in those days was very novel. And uh, so that was my first introduction to the States.
0: That's funny. I and, thought it was uh, Golden Boy. I, I thought
3: you were No, the... no, this was before Golden Boy. Huh. Golden Boy was the second show. Okay. But anyway, as a result of doing Forum, I, we met, I, obviously I met Hal Prince, and Hal asked me to become his partner in London, uh, producing shows.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So I produced a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum in London, and then shows like She Loves Me... Fiddler on the Roof, Company, Cabaret, Little Night Music, all those fabulous Hal Prince shows, I actually produced them in London.
0: Well, may I ask you, Richard... an amazing breakthrough for me. Well, uh, astonishing breakthrough, but that sounds like the complete opposite of what your skill set was and what you were into, because as a lighting designer, projection designer, and learning that, wasn't becoming a producer just about kind of begging people yeah, for money and making an sure things were change, on budget. Oh, hello? Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, there you are. I'm, I'm saying... Not,
3: it was an enormous, enormous change in my life. Yeah. So I became a producer, as, as well as being a backstage sort of person, I became a producer as well. Then, really, as a result of this sort of double life I was leading, I began to get involved in designing new theatre buildings. build theaters in England, which they hadn't done for many, many years because of World War II and the Depression. Hmm. So I began to be asked by architects and by clients to help them design the, their new theater.
0: And can so I, ask... I ridden, yeah.
3: found myself with three careers, lighting, <laughs> producing, and consulting.
0: How long were you able to keep up all three?
3: Until about yesterday, <laughs> okay, good
0: <laughs> well well, let me ask you about designing a theater i mean what what do you keep in mind? I mean, how do you even begin? Is there a vision? Is there just a budget i mean where do you what 's plan zero for starting a theater?
3: Well, the first thing is what 's theater for? Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are a million different types of theater I mean we are involved in everything from small school halls up to opera houses and, uh, you know, major drama theatres and concert halls. We do concert halls as well. And so the first thing is to decide what is it for and what is the scale of the operation. You know, is this a big professional operation or is it a small, modest one? Mm-hmm. Then, basically, every theatre has, has one thing in common. It's a place where... Actors perform and audiences go to share in that performance. It's a place where actors meet audiences. And the most important thing about any theatre is how exciting that place is uh-huh. to, to witness a show in. You know, the great theatres of, of the world are places that are a thrill to go into uh, even before the show's begun. Sure. And hmm. we've tried to sort of understand what makes some theaters good and some theaters less good.
0: And? And
3: we've sort of specialized in that, and we've now done this, built built, built theaters all around the world. I think we've knocked up about, I don't know, 1,200 projects in many countries all around the world.
0: Is there a particular favorite of, of yours, one that you're most proud of?
3: Well... Uh, hard question because they're all so different mm. uh the steppenwolf theater in chicago wow. we designed and that's a great favorite uh the walt, walt disney concert hall in los angeles the frank Gehry building i mean that's pretty Gee. special and then the the building that started us off working around the world was the national theater of great britain because i moved from being olivier's lighting designer to becoming his consultant and the design of the new building. Oh. And that was, you know, a sort of major advance. Well, yeah. <laughs> and uh, obviously the building became very famous, or you could say notorious. <laughs> and uh, people in various countries around the world started approaching me about uh, would we help them in their theatres? And we began working in Hong Kong and the middle east and all over the place no sorry we seriously began working in the united states in the late 70s
0: but can i ask one quick question i mean i I giggled and and it it was a kind of a cute funny line about your your, about the national hold on you there? there again about the national theater being notorious uh why was the building notorious Notorious, it was very famous at the time, because it
3: wasn't finished when it opened. Oh, okay. Um, the, it, the, the whole construction process was extremely delayed. The whole. It was a time of great troubles in England. There were national strikes and things like that, and so the construction process got very, very delayed. And finally, uh, they decided they couldn't wait any longer. They had to open the building, but a lot of it wasn't really finished. And in particular, a lot of the stage equipment for which I was responsible wasn't finished. So it was quite a sort of scandal at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, And it it all got to work eventually, but not for actually a couple of years after the formal opening. So in theatrical circles, it was quite... Notorious, uh, shall we say? But uh, it brought good things for
0: me as well as bad ones. Well, speaking of of good and bad, and we and we are talking to uh, theater designer and lighting designer Richard Pilbrow. One of the um, the arcs of your new book, apparently, is talking about a theater project. Um, the um, the fact that you grew very very big as far as becoming a rental company and and helping with design of these places. But I think part of the arc of the book is that it got too big at one point, and, and there was sort yeah, of a absolutely. crisis period. Hmm? No, in, in
3: the, the late 1970s, the company probably employed over 200 people, and we expanded enormously. And we got too big, and we had a series of business mishaps, um, and so we had to go through a major reconstruction of the company. And we closed down quite a lot of activities that we had been involved in that were peripheral to our central mission, which was the process of designing lighting and designing sound and designing theatres. So we rebuilt the company in the 1980s, and um, it's been really very, very successful ever since.
0: Great. Let me let me remind people that you can get a theater project, a backstage adventure from Plaza Media Books, wherever you can buy books. Uh, and also your earlier texts, stage lagging and stage lagging design, are some of just the basic necessary books that anybody going into theatrical design just has to have. They're just, you know, the rudiments of exactly what you do. So um, let me let me ask you a, a question about, again, some of your Broadway stuff that you did. Uh, one of your, your recent, more recent assignments here was a production of Our Town, which was Paul Newman's last Broadway show. And Absolutely. so I'm kind of curious, A, about, you know, working with Paul Newman, and, and B, Our Town is a tough show because you're not working usually with any kind of real set design. So everything is really chairs and lighting. Does that present any specific challenges?
3: Dave, I've lost you again, (laughs) I'm afraid.
0: Okay. Um, the question is just about a working with Paul Newman and B lighting a show like our town that doesn't give you a lot of cost. Well, it gives you costumes, but it doesn't give you a set. It doesn't give you props. It's just a stage and people You there. Ah, Richard. Richard, stop riding the sheep.
3: Richard. i sorry, Dave. This connection is really giving me trouble. Oh, Lord. Are, are you indoors, at least? Or where are you? No, I'm indoors, but it's a, it's a, it's a landline, but it's certainly misbehaving. It's, it's 2011.
0: You, you need to do a telephone cut. Con- now, that's what you need to do. A theater project needs to expand into uh, into telephones and, and uh, wireless. But... Can you hear me? I can't believe I'm saying yeah, this. Dave, Can you hear me now? Uh, should I call you back? Yeah, why not give us a, give us a buzz back? Will I ring through again? Yeah, give, give me a call back, okay? I will. I'll do it straight away. I'll be right Hang here. Out. Okay. Bye-bye. Richard Pilrow, Amongst the Sheep. gonna bit of Bruce Coburn there on Dave's Gone by UNC Radio here. It's 10.58 in the morning here at the University of Northern Colorado. UNCradio.com is the place where you hear Dave's Gone by every Saturday, 10 until 1 in the afternoon. You can also hear it on Channel 3 in your dorms at the university. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, and I'm very happy to be talking to Richard Pilbrow, a major, major lighting designer, on Broadway, in regional theater, all over the world. In fact he's very, very far in the way away in the world as we speak. He's in the middle of New Hebrides, Scotland. Believe it or not, on a regular landline telephone inside his house, and yet it sounds like he's in the middle of a cattle drive and a windstorm. So we may kind of lose him again, but I'm hoping to to get a couple more questions out of him. Richard, can you hear me? but only just, I'm afraid, Dave. Okay. Well, I'll ask a quick question and then talk as long as you like and then I'll sort of break in when there's silence. So, please tell me about Our Town on Broadway, Paul Newman, Go.
3: Well, that was a pretty exciting production. Um... Jim Norton directed it, and Paul Newman starred in it. Uh, Tony Walton, who's my great chum, who's been my sort of mentor through most of my career, designed it. And Paul is the most extraordinary performer. Um, You know, no matter how famous, again, he's a man of great humility and it was quite something to work with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did it first at Westport, then on Broadway, and then we filmed it for high definition television and that was quite an experience, quite wonderful.
0: Yeah, if people want to, to see that Our Town, you can uh, get it, I guess, at your local libraries, and I think it's even on sale. Um, so, yeah, you know, and Our Town is such a, a wonderful play, but Richard, if you if you can hear me, what are the challenges of lighting a play like Our Town as opposed to a more standard play with lots of scenery and they stuff?
3: Forgive me, but I oh. actually
0: can't hear you. Okay, um... Richard, I think... I think maybe I should call you again. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure. really sorry about this. Three, three times is the charm. Okay, try one more time, and okay. uh, and I'll speak to you in a moment. Okay. I'll try one more time. All uh, right. All right. Bye. Bye now. Ah, yes. The joy is... Uh, th- this is why I do not understand two different things. First of all, it's 2011. We're talking about a telephone that was invented by Alexander Graham Bell well over a hundred years ago. Plus we're talking to a man who makes his career putting wires together for lighting and sound and things. And yet it's like this is worse than two tin cans with string. I, ah, anyway, Let me remind you what's going to be on the rest of days down By today, including Rabbi Sal Solomon giving his thoughts on the death of jackass actor Ryan Dunn. We'll also be going inside Broadway for theater news, as well as a farewell to the late actor Peter Falk of Columbo fame. We'll be doing our Bob Dylan segment, Bob Dylan Sooner and Later, with songs about light Glad I didn't pick songs about sound. And, uh, oh, I'll be telling more about my trip to Italy about a month ago. And we'll be playing some Clarence Clemens Bruce Springsteen songs in honor of the late big man who left us uh, about a week ago. I think that 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 uh, I think that takes care of it all. And we're just waiting for Richard Pilbro to call back. So in that time, I also want to remind you that you can go to com. For all the archives of this show for the past eight and a half years, davesgoneby.com. Even, even Richard Bill Rowan who won his internet works, uh, <laughs> likes to surf and, and, and check out that. He said some very complimentary things about my website, so that was very, very nice. And what else? Oh, um, we have... Mm-mm-mm. You can email me, davesgoneby at aol.com. Might as well do the sponsors too uh, since we're we're waiting for the phone to ring and let you know that this program is brought to you by Hewlett Minuteman Press, the copy kings of Broadway. Since uh, the mid-1970s, the Toron family has owned and operated Hewlett Minuteman Press. They do printing, binding, copying. They can put your logo on a mug or a pencil or a calendar. They also do New Year's cards and cards for all the holidays. They do good work. They do it cheaply, well, no, they do it reasonably priced, and they're great people. Hold on. UNC Radio, Richard Pilbrow, is this you? Are we on the air with you?
3: This is me, and it does sound a little better.
0: Uh, Let's hope. Let's hope. Anyway, I'm just telling folks that if you're on Long Island, and you're in the wonderful town of Hewlett, please stop in to Hewlett Minuteman Press. They are the copy kings, and tell them Dave sent you for 10% off any copy or any job, big or small, at Minuteman. Well, welcome back, Richard Pilbrow, lighting designer extraordinaire. Um, let's see, you were talking, you know what, we're, we're having very bad luck talking about our town, so let's talk about something else. You, you, um, one of the shows you also produced in London was Fiddler on the Roof with Topol, And are you sort of credited with discovering Topol here?
3: Yeah, I think that's sort of true. Uh, We had great difficulty casting the part in London. We actually couldn't find anyone who was really right to play uh, Tevye. And uh, Hal Prince's secretary at the time in New York uh, wrote
1: me a postcard saying, had I Mm -hmm. thought about Chaim Topol in Sala
3: well I saw this thing and I didn't know what she meant I didn't understand what the message was and I sort of put it on one side and forgot all about it and about three months later I was leafing through stuff on my desk and saw this note and so I rang her up I said what on earth are you talking about and apparently it was about a movie named Sala uh, that she had seen which had an old Jewish uh, guy in it who sang a rather tragic song. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, that's interesting. So anyway, we got hold of the movie, and indeed it did have this old gentleman singing a very sort of tragic, purgid song. So I found out where he came from. He was an Israeli actor. Uh-huh. I come to London to audition. And he arrived, and to my considerable distress, he was a young guy, he wasn't 70 years old as I thought he was, he was like in his early thirties. And uh, I thought, my
1: God, we've wasted the airfare from <laughs> Tel to London. However, he went up on the stage and
3: did a perfectly superb audition. He actually sang the opening number tradition really beautifully. And Jerry Box and Sheldon Harnick were with us. And we all said, my goodness, this is the man we have to get. Then we found out he didn't really speak any English. <laughs> it was quite a problem because we were going to open in two months' time.
0: But we sat down with him and he promised he could learn English and would learn English. Mm-hmm. And we decided to take the risk of this entirely unknown actor. And, and of course, Top- Topol became more famous when he actually did the movie version of Fiddler on the Roof. I mean,
3: he, you know, in, in, in the first stage, he was Fiddler on the Roof, who, um, you know, only can only thought about Zero and Mastel. But then Topol opened in London with this enormous success, and, because he got the movie.
0: Well, I have to say, as much as, as Topol is a wonderful, wonderful actor, it is kind of a sad thing for, for people who love Broadway and love that show that Zero did not get you know, didn't do it on, in in film, that we don't have that preserved. Wonderful as Topo may be. I mean, you know, Zero is Zero. Zero uh,
3: was, was the definitive performer
0: in that role. Now, can I ask you, you were, since you were already working with Hal Prince, and you helped uh, on the original Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway, do you have any Zero Mostel stories? Was he in, impossible? No, because I wasn't involved in the
3: Broadway ah. production. Okay. working with Hal as his partner in London, but I wasn't involved in, in the first production on Broadway.
0: Okay, because okay. I, I was, I was, I'm always asking for Zero Mostel stories because he's a love, and, love him and hate kind of guy. Let me ask also, uh, uh, we're finishing up our chat with Richard Pilbrow. Um, one thing I'm curious about, since you light not only Broadway and off-Broadway and things like that, but you light opera and ballet and dance, is there a difference? The fans going mad again. I know, I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just asking, is there a difference in lighting design for Broadway versus opera and dance?
3: Oh, yeah, very different in many,
0: many ways. Such as? Um. Broadway might be much to be preferred. In Broadway you have the time to do what you want to do
3: and you have your complete freedom of choice for all the equipment you need. You know, and equipment to a designer, uh, as, as paint brushes are to a painter, you can't do much unless you've got the right equipment in the right place. Mm-hmm. So, Broadway allows you to have all the facilities you want and the time to do a good job with them. Opera is remarkable, and I mean, I love opera and ballet the same. The music's glorious, it's a tremendous experience, but it's a very abbreviated process, putting the shows on. They always work in repertoire, there's different shows every night, different ballets happening each night so the rehearsal process is extremely tight very limited you have to put things on tremendously quickly ballet opening the met uh, uh, american ballet theater in a couple of weeks time and uh, i actually lit it three years ago but they're bringing it back uh, Sleeping Beauty, and again designed by Tony Walton. This is a huge production. I mean, the four enormous sets and very, very complicated uh, lighting plot. And we did the whole thing in like four afternoons, which certainly <laughs> scared the life out of me. Now, wait, are you saying you did... I've never had to work so fast in my life, but that's the way ballet operates. There are highly skilled technicians working on the shows, but... It's not like Broadway. Broadway, surprisingly, is perhaps is, is I would say more leisurely, but there's much more time to do things really carefully and really properly.
0: That surprises me. I would figure, like opera, they just throw money at you. Uh, uh, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs>
3: they spend money on a lot of other things, like musicians.
0: <laughs> All right. Hey, can I ask, can, can I ask you, you, one of the things you also lit for was um, Showboat, that, that huge, epic revival on Broadway yeah. that that Garth Drabinsky put together, I guess about fifteen twenty years ago. Um, I mean, we know now where where some of Garth Drabinsky's money was going. But did he just say, did he say, do whatever, whatever it costs, just make it look yeah. beautiful? Was that how it was?
3: That's how it was. Garth was an extraordinary character, and I must say we, the theater industry, miss him a lot. I mean, he did have an amazing entrepreneurial spirit. But, of course, he was probably far more reckless than he should have been. And certainly on Showboat, you know, under the house direction, we were given, I mean, literally unlimited resources. And uh, it was great fun for us working on the shows. And the end result was terrific. But it probably cost too much money. And if you spend too much money, you can get yourself in trouble.
0: Well, especially if you're keeping two sets of books, which apparently it was.
3: <laughs> well, that I will draw a veil over. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but, but it, it interested me in the fact that also um, you had, I would not say carte blanche, but imagine going into a Broadway show and just being being told, doesn't matter, just, you know, which is what, I guess, Julie Tamar had when she started Spider-Man, of like, yeah, just do yeah, it, we trust yeah, you.
3: I, I fear so, yeah. You yeah.
0: Know, go go do it.
3: Blanche is not always a good idea.
0: Wow. Well,
3: you know, I think that all probably artists, theatre people, we work well with a, with a budget, you know? I mean, every picture has to have a frame and every show should have a budget that makes sense. Um, you know, you've got to appeal to the public and if you spend too much money, you can't keep a show going.
0: Right um
3: everything is about balance between all those different factors you know
0: easily said but of course as we know it's not remotely easily done uh, there's there's no real magic formula and, and i don't think there ever will be really
3: no there i don't think there is but of course what garth had which well of course Hal prince had it many years before i mean how was a brilliant brilliant producer as well as a brilliant director And a producer makes things happen and makes things happen in a manner that's going to make them successful. We 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 lack good producers these days, frankly. I mean, there aren't too many of them around.
0: Well, I think it's tough because
3: shows are often put on now by committed wealthy people, and there's nobody like in charge and if you have Hal prince in charge of the show you know everything is done purposefully uh toward a specific end True. nowadays things too many people and too much money involved probably
0: well everybody gets their name above the title you know they give half a million dollars yeah that's and right there they, they are ridiculous yeah. i
3: mean the days of david merrick and Hal prince was the theater was a great it was going through a period of you know enormous success
0: Although, I mean, there's a reason they call it the Fabulous Invalid. Uh, you know, you can go to the Broadway League and they'll explain exactly why Broadway has never been more successful than no, it is right yeah, now. Sure, so.
3: sure. No, I mean, the ticket prices are very high and uh, tickets are still being sold in great quantities, so success things are very successful.
0: And how are things but over... I m-
3: still wonder whether yeah. we're going to get, you know, the great musicals that... Say how Hal Prince or David Merrick created, you know, that they're, they're
0: not too common these days. No, well, we're, they weren't that common way back when. <laughs> if you got two or three on, classics a, a season, that was. i probably good. being nostalgic. Man, well, aren't we all, you know? Um, <laughs> but we have a, had a really a delightful time chatting with Richard Pilbrow. He is um, theater designer, lighting designer. He's also the author of. Of three books including his brand new book a theater project a backstage adventure and if it's anything uh, you know like as interesting and fun as it's been talking to him on the phone here on dave's gone by it's a must read so last question um for for mr Pilbrow, if you could pick two or three shows that you have have worked on as a designer let's say not not even so much as a producer that again you're proudest of or or are part of your Biggest legacy, what would those be?
3: Oh, God, you're asking tough questions. I know. <laughs> um, often the last one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just did a production for the Irish Rep in New York. Oh, I love that. A little play called Molly Sweeney. And it's the most fascinating, wonderful Piece of dramatic theatre you can imagine, and it's, it was in this tiny theatre. The ceiling is uh, eleven feet high, mm-hmm. and we had almost no resources. I think I had sixty or seventy lights, as opposed to showboat, which probably had six or seven hundred. Right. And
0: it was a truly magical experience. Well, Molly, I, I actually saw that production. It was, it was very, very good. Oh, my God,
3: did you? Well, wow. yeah, I,
0: I used to live in New York. <laughs> and then i right, sure, sure, two or three times a year. So that's one of the productions that I... I Geraldine Hughes was in it, and I think Jonathan Hogan. and uh, It's, it's yeah. just a good play. And, and again, it's one of those interesting plays because you're liking not a lot of scenery, not a lot of anything. It's three people doing monologues on stage. That's right but you've got to keep them just,
3: and you're uh, just there yeah. trying to help them tell the story, concentrating on whoever's speaking and trying to help tell the story. And I thought that was wonderful theater. I was captivated by it.
0: Well, we have been captivated. And we're doing that and we're
3: repeating it in, uh, Long Wharf in New Haven in September. Oh, lovely. Great. Yeah, which is going to be fun.
0: Well, it has been great fun and lovely fun talking with, Richard Pilbrow. Richard, uh, I wish you a wonderful vacation out in New Hebrides, although I would, if I were you, get a new um, (laughs) cable and and phone provider out there. there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, Dave. Thank you, Richard Pilbrow. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye Bye. Bye.
6: Every picture has its shadows, and it has some source of light. Blindness. Blindness and the perils of benefactors, the blessings of parasites. Blindness, blindness and sight, threatened by all things. Devil of cruelty, drawn to all things,
7: devil, devil of delight,
6: delight. mythical level of the ever present love, covenant, blindness, blindness, and sadness. Freedom scribbled in the subway. It's like night, night and day. Threatened by all things, caught a cold. opening day
0: Johnny Mitchell from the hissing of summer lawns, uh, shadows and light, concluding our light segment. Well, for now on Dave's Gone By in honor of our phone guest Richard Pilbrow, very kind to call all the way from New Hebrides and give us give us his wonderful experiences working in the theater. I apologize for the phone trouble. Usually it's on our side. Usually there's something going on at the university. The phones cut out. The board is screwing up. The computer has a problem. Uh-uh. Wasn't us. Wasn't us. It's the way <laughs> they're using sheep cables or something over there to, to transmit the uh, audio pulses. I don't know. But anyway, at least we really did get some, some wonderful stories. I'm Richard Pilbrow. And so that moves us gently into Inside Broadway, our weekly look at the theater in New York and around the country. Um, so it's going to be cool Inside Broadway because not only will I be giving you a couple of news items, but I appeared on a, another radio show. This past week on a friend of mine, Bob Cudmore, who hosts a morning show on WVTL out in Rochester, New York. And he has me on every few weeks to talk about the theater because he loves it, too. And, um, you know, I guess he fancies me something. I'm an expert on it. And he asked me about Spider-Man because all his listeners are really curious about it. So I talked to Bob about the whole Spider-Man thing, and we'll be playing that audio in just a few minutes. But first, let's go to the news on the Rialto, including news that there's a new musical coming to Broadway in just a couple of months. It's going to the Gerald Schoenfeld Theater, and it's called Bonnie and Clyde, the musical, with a book by Ivan Menchel, who did a, a cute little comedy about older people, oh, about two decades ago, called The Cemetery Club that was kind of popular. I mean, the critics slammed it. They said, oh, it's like warmed over Neil Simon. But it was cute. I saw it. Audiences liked it. And Menchel's been doing a bunch of theater stuff on the – nothing really major until now. But now he's going to be writing the book for Bonnie and Clyde the Musical. And Dignis, the music is by a former guest on Dave's Gone By the Score – is by Frank Wildhorn. Now, he has not had particularly good luck on Broadway. I mean, even his very first show, which ran quite a long time, like a year and a half, called Jekyll and Hyde. And it was very popular, very big all across America, didn't quite make money on Broadway, didn't get the money reviews either. And since then, he would, you know, have to admit it, he's had flop after flop, everything from the Civil War to Dracula to three versions of the Scarlet Pimpernel. And then just this past season, he had a show called Wonderland in the new Broadway season. had some good songs in it. I did not get to see it, and it closed in just a couple of weeks. So Wildhorn is due for a hit. He's due for some respect and due for a hit. Maybe it will come. With Bonnie and Clyde, because there's some good buzz about it. And it'll be at the Gerald Schoenfeld Theater starting in November and opening just before the Christmas holidays. Oh, and and Laura Osnes from Greece and Jeremy Jordan play Bonnie and Clyde, the couple in crime. Going off-Broadway, there's going to be a show called The Pretty Trap in August at the Acorn Theater. That's, that's on the west-west side of 42nd Street. Cause Celeb is producing this show. Now this, I had never heard of it. Pretty Trap is actually an early version, a one-act version of the play that would become The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams. So a real kind of historical fascination in that. Not only that, but it will star Catherine Houghton, And she is, well, her aunt was Catherine Hepburn. So not only is that kind of interesting, ooh, you know, what's what's the niece like? But Catherine Hepburn, of course, played Amanda Wingfield. I don't know if she played it on Broadway, but she certainly played it in a television version of The Glass Menagerie. So kind of interesting to check out The Pretty Trap at the Acorn Theater in early August. And we'll also uh, go off-Broadway for the new second stage season. They're over on uh, the west side of Midtown. They've announced their new 2011-2012 season, which will include a musical called The Blue Flower by Jim Bauer and Ruth Bauer. A comedy by Paul Weitz called Lonely I'm Not. And Paul Weitz wrote a play called Trust. And it's probably best known. I think he did the screenplay for American Pie. And they are reviving the 1998 Pulitzer Prize winning play How I Learned to Drive by Paula Vogel. That's you know, one of the major plays of the past 20 years or so. So uh, that's the second stage season. There may be a fourth show, but they haven't announced it yet. Also, going off off Broadway, PS122, that that bastion, that wonderful place downtown on the east side where there's two or three different stages going. They do crazy experimental work and also more standard work and classics and puppet theater and all sorts of festival stuff. Well, they're going to be closing for a little while, but only to renovate and get the spaces up to code which you know, is always kind of a good thing. So, yeah, it'll take a couple of months. They're getting a redesign and improved performance spaces. So congratulations to PS122. Long time in the making. That, that, that building has needed a spiff up for a, a while. So some good news there. Off-off-Broadway, only the fact that they're going to be closed for a while is the bad part, kind of like Joe's Pub. Well, wanted to let you know also and say a fond farewell to Peter Falk, who died on Thursday at age 83. Uh, They say he died peacefully at home, which surprised me, because the past three years he has been battling uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. So I figured he was just in serious senior care, assisted living, or or a nursing home. But I guess when you have that much fame and money, you can have round-the-clock help and nurses and, and be kept at home which is rather a nice thing. Well, Peter Falk made his Broadway debut in 1956 in St. Joan. Then he played a servant in Diary of a Scoundrel. Uh, this is kind of interesting. In 1964, he was in a play called The Passion of Joseph D., which was written by Paddy Chayefsky, the guy who gave us the film Network. And in that play, Peter Falk played Joseph Stalin. I'm, I'm, I'm even trying to envision it. i I don't necessarily see it. And, of course, he was in the uh, Broadway version of The Prisoner of Second Avenue. He actually premiered that show, even though it ended up with Jack Lemmon when they made the movie a year or two later. Well, we all – I mean, okay. You can have your Peter Falk memories from movies and and TV TV things as disparate as Wings of Desire. Everybody remember that Wim Wenders film. Uh, beautifully shot art film out of Germany and the weirdest part of it and it's a very weird film if everybody kind of remembers it. It's in black and white and it's all about these people in Germany with all the little troubles in their lives. Well, some, some have big troubles and they're being looked on by these angels that we in the audience can see and the angels can't really do anything except be there and look out for them comfort them but they can't really change anything and so that's the story and the most unexpected part of the whole film is that one of those semi-earth people semi-angel people is Peter Falk playing himself and somehow it works (laughs) somehow it makes sense that peter falk is an angel just being peter falk one of my favorite uh falk memories is of course from the film the princess bride really delightful movie um rob reiner directed film great story very funny there's wallace shawn there's adventure there's sweetness there's comedy there's uh, you know it, it's it's a lovely delightful movie no matter no matter how many times you see it no matter how many years pass, it remains kind of a modern classic. But what's the most wonderful thing about it? Kind of the opening and the closing with uh, with Peter Falk as the grandpa coming to read uh, Fred Savage, of course, from The Wonder Years, a story. And he sits down, and, and Fred Savage wants none of it. You know, he loves grandpa, but it's kind of like, oh, you know, I want to be a baby. I want to hear some baby story and and you know, Falk says, ah, yeah, you know, let me you know, listen to this one." And through the film, they keep breaking up the adventure to go back to Peter Falk and the kid, which is just brilliant. You know, it, it makes the movie so much more special when they do that. And throughout the film, of course, Savage gets more and more into this wonderful adventure tale. And Falk is saying, you know, "Oh, I can I can stop now if you want." and <laughs> <laughs> I said, mean, no, 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 I, I want to hear what goes on, you know, even the mushy parts. And then, of course, the most wonderful mushy part of all. I'm not even going to say it, but you know, if you've ever seen the last couple of minutes of the film, it's just, just so touching. So we all remember, I remember Peter Falk from that, and of course we all love and remember Peter Falk from the TV series Columbo, really the the progenitor of the form Never really been done better. I, I was thinking about this yesterday in, in some detail and thinking, you know, Monk probably comes the closest. Uh, and, and Monk has an even harder assignment than Colombo ever did because Colombo you put him in the raincoat, you have the personality of Peter Falk, and he just has to ask questions and then find out who the murderer is. And usually he had like 90 minutes to do it, because they were movies of the week. wasn't even a TV series at first. They were like special movie night on TV. And later on, he even had two-hour Columbo's, which were a little flabby, quite honestly. Whereas Monk, they had to go in there every week. They had just an hour, plus they had their lead character was also an, an eccentric detective, but his eccentricities were double, and they had to play to that. And they always had to put Monk in these um, you know, situations that would trigger his neuroses and his phobias while solving the crimes. So there was all that to work in there. It was really a genius television series from Andy Breckman and, of course, Tony Shalhoub adding to it. But it wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have Monk if it hadn't been for Columbo. And those just delightful episodes that you can see over and over again. Who doesn't remember Donald Pleasance as the persnickety wine uh, onophile, I think is the word, um, you know, and, and he, he's a murderer, of course, and Colombo's trying to figure out how and why he did it. And, and meanwhile, you know, that, that was, I think, the reason that Colombo is so beloved in such a wonderful TV series. I was thinking about this too. Most of the cop shows, most of the detective shows, I mean, you've got the lead person and they're figuring it out and they've got their quirks and all this stuff. And they, they get angry and sometimes even the best cops on you know, everything from Law and Order to NYPD Blue. Every once in a while we know they're good cops, but they go a little over the line. They slap a suspect. They throw over a desk. You know, they have that, that rage moment. Ooh. Yeah, because it comes with the territory, comes with the job. But the only time I ever saw uh, Columbo get mad had to be like in the first or second episode, like the pilot episode, when he still had black hair, if you can imagine. And his raincoat wasn't quite so rumpled, and maybe his, his car wasn't quite so beat up either. But back then, you know, they were still figuring out the series, and, and in fact, Steven Spielberg shot the very first Columbo. But anyway, he's a detective and he's got this style already going on. And he gets angry at one point because he's, he's being stymied on trying to figure out who killed or, or you know, he's not getting the answers that he wants. And then they stop doing that. And I think that has been this key to the joy of Lieutenant Columbo and of the way Peter Falk plays him. He never after that, as I recall, got angry. It was always a pleasure for him to do what he did. He was always bemused. No matter, I mean, yes, or everything started with a murder. Like you got to get through the first 20 minutes of the show to see how the murder was done. And then finally, aha, they're bringing Columbo on, yay. And then it, it went into a whole new bit of turf. But with Columbo, he enjoyed the people usually that he was dealing with, even if he knew that they were killers. Because most of the time, you know, murder, it happens, it's a bad thing, it's an evil thing, but these people have also spent the rest of their lives not murdering, they've become experts or stars. And, and Columbo, while he's not, well, sometimes he is in awe of the people that he's talking to because of their expertise or their fame. So he'll go speak to a, a very famous actress of the silent movie era, and he'll be surrounded by all this opulence because he's always investigating in these very chi-chi and rich neighborhoods. And he'll be deferential, and he'll be like, oh, my wife, Mrs. Colombo, would be, oh, if you could just autograph this. And look around and ask them questions. And he would get interested in the things that they loved, whether it was wine, whether it was editing movies, whether it was um, you know, airplanes or cars, or whatever it was. He he, and we in the audience would learn something about these things, usually from the murderer who was a bit haughty and supercilious, but also so proud of their knowledge that they would want to share. And then as the show would go on, what would happen is first – the killer would always be like, "Oh, Columbo, please, yes, let me tell you all about this, and let me take you around the studio or let me take you around my laboratory, and uh, please call me anytime, and oh, if you ever hear anything or any clues or if you find out who did it, please let me know and as Columbo gets closer and closer and closer to the truth, suddenly they 're like i 'm busy don't don 't call me at this today. if you come here again, you know, i won 't talk to you anymore. You know click, click, click meanwhile." Colombo never loses the composure, never loses the smile, never loses that that going out the door and then turning over his shoulder and going, "Ah, just one more thing. In fact, that was the uh, the name, the title of Peter Falk's autobiography that he wrote in 2007, Just One More Thing. And that, that beautiful moment. And it was always solving a puzzle for him. And when he would catch the bad guys, it was always for him like, Gotcha. Yeah. Like winning a chess game. It wasn't, oh, thank God we got this crazy murderer off the street or yes, my you know, I'll get a badge or something like that. It was just aha. You were a worthy, fun opponent in this game we were playing, but I sussed you out. I gotcha. Yeah. And we were very, very lucky to have had Peter Falk in our lives for um for all these years on our TV screens. And on our our movie theater screens. I think back also to movies like The In Laws, uh, where he was (laughs) really, really funny. Uh, Marvelous actor in those John Cassavetes films, which were, of course, more dark and method. (sighs) I saw him on the stage once. He was in a play off Broadway a few years ago, and it was terrible. (laughs) But he did it. It was the very last Arthur Miller play that was produced here, I think. He may have had one after it. And it was a very weird, surreal kind of um, introspective play. I believe it was a one-person show, as a matter of fact, all about this old man looking back on the loves of his life. It was called – what was it called? It was called Mr. Peter's Connections. And it was – you knew from the first five minutes it was going to be a bore – to end all bores, Because I had no real through line, no direct story. It was just flashes of things going through this guy's mind, the memories. And the only interest at all generated by this play was the fact that it was written by Arthur Miller and you were looking for the autobiographical stuff. You hear a line and you think, ooh, was that about Marilyn Monroe? Or was that about when Joe DiMaggio was Or, or is, What was this about? Otherwise, you know, nothing to that play. But there was Peter Falk up on stage. It was good to see him. And he was an older man by then already. And you had to give him props. I mean, he could have done, you know, uh, taken a nice role in a Shaw play or a Chekhov play or something like that. But no, he took on a one-person show well into, I'm sure, much in late 60s, early 70s with, um, you know, and, and, and knew it. And had it down cold. It wasn't uh, one of these cases where you, like when I saw Don Amici in Our Town on Broadway, and he couldn't even get the lines down. I mean, he was there. It wasn't his fault. <laughs> it was a bad play. So I, I give him props for that. But most of all, for Columbo, for the Princess Bride, and for all else of the joy that uh, Peter Falk gave us, I hope he's, uh, they give him a special golden raincoat way up in the beyond. Well, it is 1140 in the morning here on uncradio.com. I'm Dave Lefkowitz. You are listening to Dave's Gone By, which we do every week here at the station. We're still doing Inside Broadway because a couple of days ago, I was invited to be a phone guest on WVTL Radio in Rochester, New York. For a show called Coffee with Cudmore, a guy named Bob Cudmore, who was a guest on this program a couple of years ago. And I've been uh, a guest on his show a few times over the years talking about theater. In fact, uh, two, three weeks ago, I was on there talking about the Tony Awards. And now more specifically, Bob was really interested in Spider-Man because it was, even though it didn't even open last season, it was one of the big stories in theater of last season. So he wanted to talk about that, and uh, I, th- I thought it went really, really well. Sometimes, you know, I'm a little—he tapes pretty early in the morning, so I'm a little tired and getting my thoughts together. Sometimes my throat isn't open enough, so I'm <clears throat> barely getting the words out. But this particular time, I think I was kind of on. So let's hear uh, from June 21st on the Bob Cudmore Show, Spider-Man.
7: Spider-Man. <laughs> Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is truly none other than Jaime the Drummer, except no substitutes. He's come in, not because there's a contest. Don't bother calling the show. No, Thank you, Jaime. Because we have a showbiz guest. He'll be on in just a moment. He is Dave Lefkowitz. He's going to talk with us about the Broadway stage. I know, another pretentious Twit topic of mine, but uh, the current temperature is uh, 69 degrees. Here's Dave Green with the weather for the first day of summer. Coffee with Cudmore. Life and 1570 AM WVTL. Again, Jaime's here uh, from a uh, rural grove. Good to bring the drum set in to welcome our guest, Dave Lefkowitz, all the way from Colorado to talk about the Broadway stage. Isn't that pretty strange?
0: Good morning, Bob Cutmore. And, and no, there's nothing strange about it. Nor are you a pretentious twit in any way, shape, or form for oh, liking the musical
7: theater. Hmm? Oh, I'm pretty pretentious. Pretty. What? Oh, you mean because <laughs> oh, liking musical theater isn't something that pretentious twits like? Maybe it used to be, but
0: you know, check any 15 to 17 year old and ask if they're watching Glee, or if they come to New York, ah. what what's the first thing they want to do? You know. And they want to see theater. Hopefully, they also want to see non-musical plays as well. Right. But, um, yeah, maybe I'm kind of a pretentious twit myself, but it's gone so far beyond a fringe uh, niche yep. and kind of yep. entertainment now. It is uh, right in the center, right in the heart of, um, of American culture. I mean, what is American Idol? But a bunch of people getting up and, and sometimes singing show tunes.
7: That's right. Let's put on a show. And also, uh, for example, the, the main reason uh, that I asked to have you on is my uh, co-host in the morning, who doesn't like topics that are pretentious or twitty, uh, Dave Green. I <laughs> uh, said, uh, you know, what is with this Spider-Man musical? Isn't that dangerous? It seems to me Spider-Man sort of like a reality show. or like, we've got a story today about a man from up here, uh, from Mayfield, who's uh going to be the host of 101 Ways to Leave a Game Show, a man named Jeff Sutphin. And which uh-huh. what they're going to do is they'll either put the person on the wings of a biplane, drop him or her from a speeding 18-wheeler. You get the idea. I mean, uh, it seems that uh, maybe Spider-Man is, is trying to create the atmosphere of a reality show.
0: Whoa, not even... I mean, if you want to be jokey about it, perhaps you can say that, but but the, the real Spider-Man story is you have a brilliant visionary director, uh, Julie Taymor, who gave the world not only The Lion King, but some pretty extraordinary films. If you've ever seen the Frida Kahlo film that she did, she, she's a marvelous, brilliant director, and... Uh, you know, they went to her after she made billions of dollars for Disney with the Lion King and said, okay, you know, you do Spider-Man and we will give you the whole toy box, all the crayons with all the colors, all the money you want, just give us something amazing. And what she did was give us something amazing. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I haven't seen it. I'm only going by what friends have told me and what I have read. But she created something amazing. She also created something that was a mess and that turned out to be a danger to some of the people physically involved. Uh, I mean, it's a horrible analogy, but you know, when Chinese people were building the railroads in this country, a lot of them died. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah, they they yeah. worked for, for miserable wages, et cetera, but we have railroads. Okay? Not necessarily a fair analogy, but if you take what Taymor was trying to do with her design, with her acrobatics, with her stunts, with all of that going on, Unfortunately, safety was not Uh, always the premier concern.
7: Let me ask you this. I mean, do you suppose that it's anything at all, like we also on this radio station do a lot with the auto racing, our friend Ed Lamberton, we talk about local racing and NASCAR, and the NASCAR fans have been accused for generations of going to the races to watch for crashes. Do you suppose that's why people are attracted to Spider-Man?
0: I think that could have been true in the first few months that it started previews. First of all, people were just excited about this huge, musical, the most expensive musical ever. It was budgeted at 65 million dollars and it's gone way way over that. Um, you know, whereas I-, I grew up in a time when musicals, if it was a 10 million dollar musical, that was enormous. You know, so, so this was a, a musical with the budget of a movie. So people were like, oh my gosh, wow, this is going to be big. Because that's what people want to see. They want to, sometimes, right. especially tourists, they want to see big, expensive-feeling musicals like Miss Saigon or Wicked, um, things like that. So there's an interest there. And then I have to say one of the reasons that it became so huge is a, a colleague and friend of mine, uh, a fellow named Michael Riedel of the New York Post, he writes a column twice a week that is a pure and simple, honest and truthful gossip column. And he ran with Spider Man like because he has those news instincts. And he knew, whoa, you know, this is gonna be big no matter what. Whether it flops horribly or whether it's the biggest hit ever. It's it's this gigantic story with all these different Web-like tangles to it, and when people started getting hurt, he just was like, "Oh my gosh, you know, is is OSHA checking this out? Is the union checking this out? Um, you know, how is this going to to fly?" Literally.
7: Oh, women so oh, wait a minute. that Hi-
0: became Hi- the story.
7: Jaime's Hi- Hi- asking me a question here. He says <laughs> sure. he wonders if the drummer gets to wear a, a helmet in this.
0: Uh... <laughs> you know what, what people don't talk about is I don't think anybody has been injured for many, many months. I mean, I know that sort of uh, you know doesn't do well for the people who did get injured in the show in the early months. But, you know, think about it. Uh, the, the news has not been involved in the safety issues for a very long time yeah. now on that right. show. Yeah. And it's still been selling more than a million dollars a week. So people are obviously interested in something else, the fact that the score is written by Bono and the Edge of U2, that it is a Julie Taymor production, that it did manage to open, that it is telling the, the Spider-Man comic book Marvel um, mm-hmm. Stan Lee mm-hmm. stories. you know. So so there, there's more to it than that.
7: Now, do you uh, oh, I know, you had also emailed me, I don't know if this gentleman you're talking about from the Post now or somebody else from the Post sure. saying mm-hmm. that, this show—the one problem it's having is that it's so was so expensive to make. It's really got to rake in the dough uh, to to break even.
0: That yes, that is an absolute key, and that was the big shocker for me when I had Mike Riedel from from the New York Post on my Tony radio show uh, a couple of weeks ago. I said, "Now wait a minute. Most musicals, you know, they're between if they gross somewhere in the range of five hundred to seven hundred thousand dollars a week." That's their nut. That's that's what keeps them in the black. And then if they go over that, that's profit, and it starts paying back the investors and making lots of money. Mm -hmm. So you have shows like Wicked and Jersey Boys and uh, Mamma Mia that routinely gross a million bucks a week or more, and their operating costs are well below that. And so people have made multi-million dollars Mm -hmm. on these productions. So I figured it was the same with Spider-Man for all the trouble that it's had, all the costs all the bad PR and, and all, also the mediocre to bad reviews that it's gotten, <laughs> the show is selling more than a million dollars a week worth of tickets. And Michael you know, apprised me of the fact, he said, you know, Dave, the show costs more than a million a week to run, which I've never heard of. I, I, wow. That's amazing to me. And so if they're only pulling in, let's say, 1.1 million, uh, they're, they're probably losing money that week. So, it isn't just the fact that they would have to run five to ten years at near capacity uh, to to break. They have to be almost at capacity for five years. The only way to make money is to tour it cheaply.
7: Uh, Jaime was just telling me that where he uh, used to play at the Falling Inn, uh, it didn't cost that much every week. It was just. and yeah. okay no That's it's generally point. not no
4: you
0: know
7: now but, um, um, another point okay so spider-man's great go see it but it probably costs a fortune to go see it and probably got to wait a hundred years to get a ticket don't you
0: no? well, well no, 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 no well no let's let the first of all spider-man is not supposedly great it is an attempt at doing something great that failed they took out julie taymore uh because you know, she had some visual things that were amazing, but the story was an absolute mess, and people weren't that crazy about the U2 score. Um, so they brought in some new writers and revised it, finally opened the show. And by the way, let me also mention the fact that although we consider it kind of something from last season, and they even appeared a little bit on the Tony Awards, mm-hmm. Spider-Man waited so long to open. It isn't even technically a new musical until this current Broadway season. That's why it wasn't nominated for any Tonys at all, as it couldn't be. Mm. It, it didn't even officially open until June 14th. So they brought in new people, and they fixed it up. They fixed up the book. They made it more coherent. They tell a real story. Whether they turned it into something good, according to reviews and stuff like that, no, it's still <laughs> what they did was they, they made it right. clearer. But they didn't necessarily make it wonderful. Some of the magic is gone. Okay. You know, So I wouldn't say it's wonderful, go see it. I also wouldn't say you'll never be able to get tickets because it's a huge theater. And I think if you want tickets, you can still buy them. They'll be expensive. Uh, but I don't think you have to scalp them or anything. They're, right. they're around.
7: Okay, you know? so you, you can go see it, but it's not the greatest. But it's got wonderful uh, production value.
0: Okay, fair enough.
7: All right. Um, what do you think, Jaime? Jaime loves it. Um, <laughs> now... Uh, we've talked about this before, but I saw a piece about... Uh, we're talking with Dave Lefkowitz, theater critic. He's out in Colorado. does a radio show, also uh, publishes uh, Performing Arts Insider for his friends in Manhattan, where they put on uh, many of these plays, that the theater, as you indicated at the beginning, it has become edgy. It's become modern. It's become what, what's what's happening with, with the Book of Mormon and the thing with the horses and all that. I mean, I, I saw that somewhere. But could it be Time Magazine? I'm waiting for one of my many doctors who stick things into me and uh, so forth uh, that <laughs> that was the 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 case. I mean, well, it is the case. I mean, that they're doing very edgy stuff on Broadway,
0: which is wonderful to see. I I wouldn't say War Horse is particularly edgy. It's it's incredibly beautiful and visionary in the way it's presented and constructed, with these horses and the way they're made out of wire and mesh and. and all these different materials, and they're very lifelike. But the story itself, I mean, Warhorse is an old-fashioned family kind of show mm-hmm. that could have been done 40 years ago, but Mormon, no. And you have to play the mother effer with the hat by Stephen Adley Guirgis, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. came out of nowhere, and people were afraid they couldn't market it. Mm-hmm. You couldn't put the full title on a marquee or in a New York Times ad or, or on a radio ad on WVTL mm-hmm. because, you know, it had that word in there. And meanwhile... Reviews came out, and the show, which was supposed to close in a week, uh, is still running. It's making very good money, and it didn't win uh, the, the Tony Award. War Horse won for Best Play. But still, out of nowhere, that came through. And I think it's been a slow evolution of accepting things on Broadway, because Broadway was actually starting to get behind the curve It used to be the place where the issues were discussed that you couldn't talk about on television. You know, homosexuality and abortion, what have you. And then, you know, television started to change a little bit with Norman Lear and sitcoms, you know, started dealing with other things Mm -hmm. and these dramas and then cable came along and language went all over the place, uh, which TV followed suit and suddenly TV became ahead of the curve on all these things. And now Broadway is finally catching up and how do they do it they get guys who wrote south park you know to to come up with a musical or you get some revisions of old things that make them modern like spring awakening was a pretty out there uh very strong and good musical with bad language and updating a hundred year old play but making it extremely rock and roll and extremely dark and, and modernist
7: Wow. I tell you, you know a lot of stuff. You should be teaching out there in Colorado, are you? or are you?
0: I have. I have taught at the University of Northern Colorado, where I'm, I'm currently getting a second, a second master's degree, because, you know, it looked like potato chips. You have one, you, know, you have to have another right after it. But, uh, um,
7: Jaime just gave you a drum roll for that. He thought it was pretty thank impressive. You. Yeah.
0: Now I've taught playwriting here. I'm hoping to teach some more here or at other schools locally, so I'm poking around for that. But uh, mainly I'm, I'm programming director of... UNC's radio station, which I'm I'm quite proud of, and doing Performing Arts Insider, and doing Togletheater.com, and also hosting Dave's Gone By on Saturday mornings. So I keep busy.
7: I guess you do keep busy, Dave Lefkowitz, and it's a pleasure talking with you. And uh, Jaime and I wish you the best, and uh, maybe you'll get to see Spider-Man. We could do a radiothon to uh, raise the money for the tickets for you.
0: You you know, uh, I was one of the good guys. I waited. Um, Whereas critic friends of mine were running to see it in previews, because it had been in previews so long, they were like, this is ridiculous, they're charging full price for tickets, and and consumers aren't knowing whether it's any good or not. So they went out and bought their own tickets, or the newspapers did for them, and they ran to to see the show long before the official opening. But finally, it did open, so now... When, if I can get to New York in time, probably running well into October, um, I will do that. Thanks, Bob.
7: You're welcome, Dave. Dave Lofkowitz. Uh, Dave's Gone By is his radio show on the uh, wuncradio.com. You can hear it. Uh, you, you have a good day. Good to talk you to too. you. You too. Thank
0: you so much, Bob. Bye-bye.
7: 949 is the time.
0: Actually, the time is 1156 in the morning here at UNC Radio. It's not WUNC. Sorry, sorry, Bob. It's UNC Radio. On the internet, it is 1157 AM. That was uh, my appearance on the Bob Cudmore Show, Coffee with Cudmore on WVTL, just a couple of days ago, talking Spider-Man. He's he's a really good radio host. I mean, the the voice and the, the questions, I could live without Jaime and the drumming thing, but everybody's got their shtick. What can I tell you? Wanted to finish our inside Broadway segment here before we go into our Bob Dylan sooner and later segment, just uh, with a couple of things. First of all, letting you know that inside Broadway and Dave's gone by are brought to you by TotalTheater.com, which collects theater reviews from all over the country and all over the world. If you want to know the quality of shows that are on Broadway, the big shows that are opening like Spider-Man like War Horse, like the Book of Mormon, it's there. If you want to read about Off-Broadway, if you want to read theater reviews from places like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Los Angeles, California, Chicago, Illinois, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, there at, at uh, TotalTheater.com as well. And shows from around the world, plus Feature stories, interesting stories and interviews with people who make the news in theater. Just go to Togaltheater.com, absolutely free, to poke around and read and enjoy. This program is also brought to you by Performing Arts Insider, the Bible of Broadway since 1944. Performing Arts Insider is a journal that is used by people in media and in the theater to know exactly what is happening in theater in New York at any time, and to be able to contact the folks who make the theater, the authors, the directors, the designers, people like Richard Bilbro, who was, was our guest about an hour or so ago, um, the press agents, the managers, knowing when things are opening, closing, starting previews, changing casts, getting rumors on what shows might be coming to Broadway in a year or two or three. They're all in the pages of Performing Arts Insider Theater Magazine, along with calendar listings for cabaret, opera, dance, awards, and special events. Performing Arts Insider is a hard copy magazine. It actually comes to you the old-fashioned way, in your mailbox. So you have to subscribe to it, and you do that by going to performingartsinsider.com, performingartsinsider.com. .com for the mag, or if, you know, it's kind of an, ex- an expensive industry publication. So if you want to check it out first, you're not sure, you want to see what it's all about, if you're in New York, you can get a single copy over at the Drama Bookshop and also Theater Circle up on West 44th Street. So they carry the monthly editions, and I think those are about $15 and worth every single penny. So PerformingArtsInsider.com, a proud sponsor of of Dave's gone by. And I don't think I gave you uh, before the address and contact for Hewlett Minuteman Press, the copy Kings of Broadway. You can call them at 21256 oh, excuse me, no. Area code five one six five six nine five five seven seven. Area code five one six five six nine five five seven seven for Hewlett Minuteman Press. Ten percent off any copy job. Big or small, just tell them that Dave Lefkowitz sent you from Dave's Gone By. It is noon here in Greeley, Colorado. You're listening to uncradio.com, the radio station of the University of Northern Colorado. You can also hear us on Channel 3 on your dorm room television sets at this university. Uh, only, I think, one or two of the dorms are open this time of year. But 24-7, you can check us out and uh, you know have... UNC radio on, because well, we don't have live shows, we also have music playing, so definitely you know, give a listen more to this radio station. By the way, I wanted to give you the weather forecast for today in northern Colorado. Going to be another hot one. Sunshine and clouds mixed. High is going to be 91 degrees. It's already, hmm, I haven't listed at 70, but I need to refresh that screen. There we go. It's it's up to 77 now. Going to hit 91 and then just clouds, clear going down to just under 60 later on. And then tomorrow, even warmer, hot, supposed to be like 94 for a high. A few afternoon clouds, clear to partly cloudy in the evening, mid 50s. And then Monday might get a thunderstorm or two, but will cool off a bit. The high only getting to about 80 degrees. And then Tuesday clears up again, mostly sunny, but. Back up to 90. So not too bad, but bring a hat, bring water, bring sunscreen. It's going to be sunny and pretty darn warm for the next couple of days. But, hey, it's the beginning of summer in Greeley, Colorado. What do you expect? Well, I know what most of you are expecting is a half hour of Bob Dylan music. We do it every week here on Dave's Gone By. We play a few songs by For me, the greatest musical artist, pop musical artist, at least, of our time. And sometimes we like to do thematic segues on that. So in honor of Richard Pilgrim and the fact that we've been talking about light and lighting for a good part of the show, I chose a few Dylan songs with light in them. Now, what's interesting is I only could find one Bob Dylan song with light in the title. Uh, that, That one's from Love and Theft. Called Moonlight, which we'll be playing. Most of the other that it's weird. It's such a common word, and Dylan uses it a lot in, in his lyrics. But that's the only time he's used it in the title of a song, which which I don't know kind of surprised me. But anywho, let's get to the Bob Dylan music on this Bob Dylan sooner and later segment. We'll go with a, a recent tune from modern times. This is when the deal goes down.
2: In the still of the night, in the world's ancient light, where wisdom grows up in strife. My bewildered brain, tiles in vain, through the darkness on the pathways of life. Each invisible prayer Is like a cloud in the air Tomorrow keeps turning around We live and we die We know not why But I'll be with you when the deep old. And we dream we feel and we think far down the street we stray I laugh and I cry and I'm haunted by things I never meant so wish to say the midnight follows the train We all wear the same thorny crown Soul to soul Our shadows roll And I'll be with you When the deep goes down need
1: feel, the blow.
2: We learn to live And then we forgive Or the road we're bound to go More frailer than the flowers These precious hours So tightly bound You come to my eyes Like a vision from the skies And I'll be with you when the deal goes down see In this earthly domain Full of disappointment and pain You'll never see me frown I owe my heart to you And let's say it true And I'll be with you in the deep Goes
1: down
2: far between sundowns finish. And midnight's broken toll We ducked inside the doorway Thunder went crashing As majestic bells of bolts Struck shadows in the sounds Seeming to be the chimes of freedom flashing Flashing for the warriors Whose strength is not to fight Flashing for the refugees On the unarmed road of flight And for each and every underdog soldier in the night And we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing Through the city's melted furnace Unexpectedly we watched With faces hidden as the walls were tightening As the echo of the wedding bells Before the blowing rain Dissolved into the bells of the lightning Tolling for the rebel Tolling for the rake Tolling for the luckless They are abandoned and forsake Tolling for the outcast Burning constantly at stake And we gazed upon The chimes of freedom flashing Through the mad mystic hammering Of the wild ripping hail The sky cracked its palms in naked wonder As the clinging of the church bells Blew far into the breeze Leaving only bells of lightning and its thunder Striking for the gentle, striking for the kind, striking for the guardians and protectors of the mind. And the poet and the painter far behind is rightful time. And we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing, In the wild cathedral evening, the rain unraveled tales For the disrobed faceless forms of no position Tolling for the tongues with no place to bring their thoughts All down in taken for granted situations Tolling for the deaf and blind, tolling for the mute ¶ For the mistreated, mateless mother, the mistitled prostitute ¶ For the misdemeanor outlaw, chained and cheated by pursuit ¶ And we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing ¶ Even though a clouds white curtain in a far off corner flared, and the hypnotic splattered mist was slowly lifting, electric light still struck like arrows, fired but far the ones condemned to drift, or else be kept from drifting. Falling for the searching ones On their speechless seeking trail For the lonesome hearted lovers With too personal a tale And for each unharmful gentle soul Misplaced inside a jail And we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing  ¶¶¶ Starry-eyed and laughing ¶ As I recall when we were caught ¶ Trapped by no track of hours For they hang suspended As we listened one last time And we watched with one last look Spellbound and swallowed Till the tolling ended Tolling for the king Whose wounds Cannot be nursed. The countless, confused, accused, misused, strung-out ones, and worse. And for every hung-up person in the whole wide universe, and we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing. side of the road Still I wish there was something you would do or say To try and make me change my mind and stay But we never did too much talking anyway So don't think twice it's alright And it ain't no use in Calling out my name, gal Like he never did before And he no use in calling out my name, gal I can't hear you anymore I'm a-thinking and a-wondering All the way down the road I once loved a woman, a child I'm a-told i give her my heart, but she wanted my soul well, Don't think twice, it's all right I'm walking down that long, lonesome road, baby Where I'm bound, I can't tell But goodbye's too good a word, gal So I'll just say fairly well I ain't seen you treated me unkind You could have done better But I don't mind You just kind of wasted my precious time Don't think twice, it's all right In the memory of decay, I gaze into the doorway of temptation's angry flame. And. Every to hear again a song bad sweet melodious tone. Shadows on the stone. Won't you leave me out in the blue light alone? The boulevards of cypress trees, the masquerade of birds and bees, the petals pink and white, the wind has blown. will And mystic glow The purple blossoms off the snow My tears keep flowing to the sea Dr. Lawyer and in your chief It takes a thief to catch a thief Of whom does the bell toll for love It tolls for you and me Our pulses run into my palm The sharp hills are rising from Yellow fields with twisted oaks that grow Whoa
0: including our Bob Dylan sooner and later set there with Moonlight from Love and Theft. We played songs about light, since that's been kind of the theme of this episode of the show, which is called The Light Fantastic. Of course, we talked to lighting designer Richard Pilbrow earlier in the program. We also played some light songs in our Saturday segue, and now... We've heard a half hour of Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan sooner and later, and songs involving the word light. As I said, that is the only song that I have found of Bob Dylan's that has light actually in the title. If you go um, on BobDylan.com, it's a great way to find out uh, all the songs that he's written, and it'll list them, and you can also search by word. And so you put the word light in there, and a couple of dozen songs come up, but only Moonlight from Love and Theft has it in the title. The other songs that we heard in that set, we began with When the Deal Goes Down from another recent album called Modern Times, then going all the way back to The Times They Are A-Changin', Chimes of Freedom, the original version. And then from Empire Burlesque, we heard Something's Burning, Baby. And then, well, and I should be telling you where light figures into these, shouldn't I? Okay, so from When the Deal Goes Down... You hear it twice. There's the line, In the still of the night, in the world's ancient light. And then later on, The moon gives light and shines by night. So after that chimes of freedom, we hear the the word lightning twice. And also, Electric light still struck like arrows. Something's burning, baby, from Empire Burlesque. There's a couple of lines in there that goes, Why is the light in your eyes nearly gone? But where do you live, baby, and where is the light? And I can feel it in the light, and it's got to be true. So three times in Something's Burning, we hear the light burning and shining in there. Don't think twice, it's all right, of course. Ain't no use in turning on your light, babe, the light I never knowed. And in every every, Every Grain of Sand, the song we hear on the Shot of Love album... The sun beats down upon the steps of time to light the way. And later on, he sings in the chill of a wintry light. And moonlight, finally, that concluded our set from Love and Theft. Won't you meet me out in the moonlight alone? And also, he mentions the dusky light. Here on Bob Dylan, sooner and later on this radio program, Dave's Gone By. I'm Dave Lefkowitz. Very happy to be with you every Saturday. Not sure if I will be here uh, next Saturday, the first one in july there's some some equipment stuff going on at the radio station and also i 'll be getting ready to take a couple of very very intense intensive summer classes at the university here um, to work on my uh, uh on a master 's degree and so I know that I will be off for most of the month of July. Whether I do a show next week is still kind of up in the air, but I know the three weeks after that, I'm dead to the world. I'm, <laughs> you, you will not be hearing me on the radio. You'll just be seeing me running, running around campus with books and notes and things to re- rehearse and plan. Terrifying. But uh, after that, certainly we'll be back at the end of July and all through August and the beginning of the school year and the new season here at UNC Radio and uncradio.com. I do want to let you know that I have done a little extracurricular radio last week. I know you heard me on WVTL talking to Bob Cudmore when I I played that last half hour. Uh, I wanted to mention that both my wife, Joyce, and I are guests tomorrow morning on KFKA Radio, which is uh, just down the road here from UNC Radio. KFKA is an AM talk station, and a friend of mine there, Gil Moon, has a couple of shows on the weekends. One of them is... um, where he plays old-time radio, classic old-time radio, everything from The Shadow and Fred Allen and Amos and Andy and Fibber McGee and Molly and, and, of course, Lemon Abner. Can't leave them out. Well, that's every Sunday night from 6 until 10 in the evening. But he also hosts a show called Senior Circle, and that is a program every Sunday morning at 10 dedicated to uh, the older population in northern Colorado, uh, and it deals with the issues that they face and also the places that they can go as far as either assisted living or nursing homes or also senior centers. And so he'll have on people representing that community. Well, my wife is a gerontologist, so once a month uh, she goes on there, and and I'm dragged along, kind of like uh, dragging the dog along. uh, Well, also, I get along really well with with Gil, and we talk about old movies and theater and radio because that's a mutual interest, and we have a lot of fun together. So tomorrow is one of those times. Joyce and I will be on Senior Circle on KFKA Radio, 1310 a.m. here on your regular radio dials from 10 until 11 in the morning, and I think it's 1310 a.m. Uh, or what is it? 1310kfka.com is their URL where you can stream the show live. I want to give a a shout out to a young woman named Kendra Lewis. She was on, she will be on the show tomorrow on uh, Senior Circle on KFKA. And anyway, she, it's this this thing where she's a talented young woman. She wants to be an an actress. And so she's, doing stuff local. I think she's still in high school, actually. She won this competition, or at least she is moving up the ranks of this acting competition that they're having. They had auditions here in Colorado, and now when you move up to a certain level, they invite you out to Los Angeles to go for the big prize. You know, there were 420 people competing initially, and then they narrow it down to 25, and those 25 get to go to L.A. and compete. It's kind of like a beauty pageant, but it's more of a talent pageant for acting and especially commercials and things like that. Well, anyway, she really, really, really wants to go but it costs some money, and her dad is trying to raise some dough for the car trip out to L.A. and to stay there a couple of nights to be part of the competition. So, as a favor to Gil and to these nice people, if you are interested in donating to the fund to bring Kendra Lewis to Los Angeles so she can compete in this acting competition, uh, here is the address to make your checks payable, P.O. Box 351, La Porte, Colorado 80535 box 351 Laporte Colorado 80535 and just to uh, apparently prove that this is not some kind of scam or whatever the father is actually leaving Uh, His home number. So if you want to ask him about this whole thing and you want to know, well, why do we have to pay and what is this competition and what does she get out of it and what can she win? You can give him a buzz. 970-221-0927. 970-221-0927. Now, I asked him if he had a website and he said he did. I just don't have his name in front of me or what the website is. So really, your best bet is calling the, uh, the number 970 221 and uh, send Kendra Lewis off to Los Angeles in the hopes of, of taking that million to one shot of getting the commercial, of getting the gig, of winning the prize. Well, let's see. It is 11, uh, excuse me, 1241 in the afternoon here in Northern Colorado, which means it's 2.41 in New York, and it is time for the Rabbinical Reflection of the Week. This is uh, someone who has been on the program since the very, very beginning, since our first show in October of 2002. He kind of gives us our, our spiritual calling here at Dave's Gone By, although he's is not what you would call a typical religious sort of person. Anyway, he's going to be reflecting on a death this week. A lot of of celebrities passed um, the past few days. Ryan Dunn, who was a cast member of the MTV shock and stunt series Jackass, which amazingly enough, that's 10 years old and they only did a couple of seasons of it. It feels like it's still been around maybe because they keep doing the movies. I think they're on to their third one now. But Ryan Dunn was a part of that and did all these insane, ridiculous stunts. But then this past week, he decided to do the dumbest stunt of all. He had a lot of drinks, climbed into a car, drove drunk and drove fast and ended up killing himself and killing a passenger in the car as well. So uh, Rabbi Saul Solomon has a cautionary thought or two in his rabbinical reflection this week. So let us bring the rabbi in for our rabbinical reflection here on Dave's Gone By. Shalom, damn it! This is Rabbi Saul Solomon with a rabbinical reflection for the week of June 25th, 2011. What is the definition of a jackass? A donkey, of course. Also, a stupid person, a fool. That's according to Webster's Dictionary and to me when we talk about the late Ryan Dunn. Dunn was a cast member on the MTV television program Jackass, which had crazy people doing idiotic, dangerous things, putting their heads in beehives, skating into walls, firing objects in and out of their torches, and falling on things. Lots and lots of falling on things. This is what passes for entertainment in a new millennium. And hey, sometimes it's funny. A person walking on the street slips on dog poop. It's amusing, unless they're badly injured, in which case it's hilarious. Goofy people pulling stunts that the rest of us are too mature or just too cowardly to do can be an appealing form of comic relief. After all, It answers one of the basic curiosities of mankind. What would happen if? What would happen if I ride a motorcycle into a group of midgets dressed like nuns? What would happen if I cover my best friend with firecrackers, make believe I'm going to light them, but instead I kick him really hard in the nuts? Hours, my friends, of delightful high-class entertainment. Along with Johnny Knoxville and Steve O, Ryan Dunn took part in these perilous shenanigans. And there was always controversy. Parents worried that their children would imitate these yutzes and put themselves in a hospital, or worse. But that never bothered me. These were professional pranksters. If they wanted to strap raw meat to their behinds while being dangled over a swamp full of alligators, who am I to judge? And if your kid is stupid enough to copy that, well, alligators have to eat too. So, if you want to hurt yourself or your willing accomplices, that's between you, your friends, and the guy holding the water cannon. But I call Ryan Dunn a jackass and a putz and a moron and a bastard, because on the night of June 20th he had enough drinks to befuddle Russia and then climbed in his Porsche and started to drive. Eventually, his fancy car came to a stop. Unfortunately, it was in the middle of a tree. Police estimate the automobile had been going a 130 miles an hour and that Dunn's blood alcohol was more than twice the legal limit. And yet, a miracle occurred. Oh, yes, Dunn and his friend in the passenger seat were both killed. But thank God they didn't kill anyone else. A car is a loaded weapon, especially if you're loaded. You're rich, you're famous, you think you can get away with anything, and you're going to live forever. Guess what? You're rich, you're famous, but if you have three stolies and a whiskey sour when you get behind the wheel, you will not live forever, nor will you deserve to. I don't care if you're Mel Gibson or David Cassidy or Gary Collins or Lindsay Lohan or Nicole Ritchie or Rick Tong or Rick Springfield or the woman down the street with three kids and a perk habit. If you're driving under the influence, you should be arrested for attempted homicide. When you get in a car, sober and alert, you depend on your own ability to get safely from where you start to where you want to end up. Alas, you are also dependent on everyone else on the road obeying the rules and maintaining the same level of caution. These include schmucks on their cell phones, women doing their makeup in the rearview mirror, idiots on bicycles who think the road is their own personal video game, and the prick in the SUV who thinks a couple of beers won't affect him if he just drives a little more slowly. The only thing that shocks me about those drive-by shootings in L.A. is that they were done by gang members and not white-collar working stiffs just trying to get home without being cut off at 70 miles an hour by a cheap Cherokee blaring Leonard Skinner. And so I come not to praise Ryan Dunn, but to bury him, 34 years old and a victim only of his own arrogance and negligence. When they put the word jackass on his tombstone, his fans might take it one way, but anyone with a brain will know exactly what it means. This has been a rabbinical reflection from Rabbi Saul Solomon, Temple Sons of Bitches. Signature sound, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Bobby Jean, one of the great Bruce Springsteen songs and a great performance there from Bruce. And, of course, bringing in that saxophone. And he does it probably in his, his best numbers. He holds Clarence Clemens in abeyance. He'll do a verse, a chorus, maybe another verse. And then, boom, either at the end or somewhere in the middle. That's when he'll bring in that extra shot. That's when, uh, in the parlance of... Um, the uh, was the Rob Reiner film, uh, Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap. You know that's when he cranks it to eleven. He needs that little, that little extra oomph, and he gets it from Clarence on the horn. Clarence Clemens, of course, uh, died a couple of days ago. And I've never been a huge horn fan in music. Certainly not in jazz. Uh, I can take people like Coltrane and Charlie Parker and very very small doses, Miles Davis too he's on trumpet, but you know without Clarence Clemens can't really imagine the full East Street band the way it was at its very best, and we heard three of my very favorite Bruce Springsteen tunes there in that mini set, we opened with the the ultimate Clemens song, 10th Avenue freeze Freeze Out and you saw in all the obituaries where they quoted that line, and the change was Makeup Town, and the big man joined the band. Big man being, of course, Clarence Clemens. We also heard Pink Cadillac, very very easy on the sax right there. Just its bass, its guitar, its drum, it's totally stripped down from, um, it was actually the backside of a single, and then they released it finally on that track's, box set collection, but love the beat and the rhythm of that song. And then when Clarence comes in, it's just right. And then, of course, Bobby Jean, great song from Born in the USA. And, you know, the builds to the emotion, you know, when he's saying farewell to this person, Bobby Jean could be a man. I've always assumed it was a woman, even though Bobby spelled... I think BY instead of BIE. But anyway, he's saying, you know, it, it was great. We had these wonderful times. So wherever you are, good luck, goodbye. And then in comes the saxophone. Fabulous stuff. So yeah, Clarence Clemens, the big man in rock and roll. Gone, gone, gone. You know, we spent so much time saying goodbye on this episode of Dave's Gone By. It's kind of weird. Clarence Clemens and uh, Jackass's Ryan Dunn and Peter Falk. You know, sad stuff. And again, I didn't even get to talk about Italy, and here it is, 1.01 in the afternoon, and we've got to wrap things up here in the neighborhood, but not before I do some... Business. First of all, reminding you of a couple of shows that are coming to town in Colorado, including Panic at the Disco, arriving June 28th at the Ogden Theater in Denver, Colorado. Um, You can get tickets via Ticketmaster. You can go to LiveNation.com for tickets July 1st to see Tech 9 at the Fillmore in Denver. July 2nd, The Glitch Mob is going to be at Red Rocks Amphitheater. LiveNation.com is the place for those tickets. Umphreys McGee, a little bit more my kind of music. They're playing Red Rocks on July 3rd, 6.30 in the evening, rain or shine. Check them out at Umfries.com. Rockstar Energy Mayhem Festival. Man, they're really... (laughs) I know they need to get the name of Rockstar Energy Drink in there, but it's just Rockstar Energy Mayhem Festival, July 17th at the Comfort Dental Amphitheater. Oh, so many things just do not jibe in that announcement. But anyway, livenation.com is the place for tickets. July 21st, the Fleet Foxes will be at the Fillmore. They're also playing with White Winter Hymnal. Buy them at livenation.com or check out fleetfoxes.com. Sade, August 11th at the Pepsi Center in Denver. Get tickets at Live Nation. Def Leppard, another Live Nation ticket um, offer. August 29th, Denver, Colorado, again at the Comfort Dental Amphitheater, 7 o'clock in the evening, August 29th. And reminding you, programming on UNC Radio is supported by Marquee Magazine, an independent Colorado mag that covers the regional live music scene in print and online. So go to marqueemag.com, M-A-R-Q-U-E-E, mag.com for uh, information about that. So that's the sponsors for the radio station. Thanking, of course, the sponsors for this radio program, Minute Minuteman Press, The Copy Kings of Broadway, Togaltheater.com for any reviews or feature stories you want to read about the theater. All across the world and PerformingArtsInsider.com, The Bible of Broadway since nineteen forty four. Wanna let you know about a couple of friends of the neighborhood. Those are people who have appeared on the show over the years. We figure if you've been on the show, you're a friend and, and we like to know what you're up to. Well, Carrie Hoffman is gonna be doing or is in the middle of doing my Sinatra at the Ha Comedy Club. He's been working on this show. He even had a PBS special done of this a couple of years ago. Uh, It's playing until September 5th, so all summer long, go see Carrie Hoffman do his tribute. He's not imitating Sinatra. He's doing a tribute to the songs and the persona of Frank Sinatra and Sinatra's influence on his life. That's at the Ha Comedy Club in New York. Letting you know that Athena Reich wrote the songs for and will be appearing in... A musical called Lemon Meringue at the Tada Theater, and that's in early July. Lucy Kaplansky is going to be appearing with John Gorka and Eliza Gilkison at Madison Square Park, outside and free, on July 20th, 2011. Uh, I want to let you know that you just have another couple of weeks to see the Todd Robbins play, Play Dead, off Broadway at the Players Theater. He co wrote that with Teller. Of Pen and Teller, I want to ask you to visit Alan sherstool 's wonderful weekly column, Studies in Crap. It's hilarious, and it's part of uh, San Francisco Weekly, for which he is managing editor, I believe. Uh, everybody, subscribe to DrDemento.com. I am hoping. I think he's already pre-recorded this week's episode, but I'm hoping maybe in another week he will do a tribute to Wildman Fisher, who actually appeared live on the Dr. Demento show back in 1980. Don't know if he has the tapes or anything on that. But at the very least, I would assume he's got to do a tribute. Because, you know, <laughs> can't imagine the Dr. Demento show without Wildman Fisher. And, well, one really know of Wildman Fisher too much, I wouldn't anyway, without the Dr. Demento show. And Jim Caruso's cast party every Monday night at Birdland on West 44th Street in Manhattan. Well, I'm reminding you once more to listen tomorrow morning to KFKA, 1310 AM in northern Colorado, or, or uh, I think it's 1310KFKA.com, live streaming on the internet, 10 AM Mountain Time for Gilbert Moon hosting S- Senior Circle Joyce, my wife, and I are guests on the program and uh, probably going to be a really fun time. It always is. We visit there about once a month and have a terrific time with Gil. So give that a listen if you will. Well, it's been really, really fun. I want to thank so much all of you for listening. I want to thank Richard Pilbrow. For being our guest in the neighborhood, please pick up one of his books, including especially the new one, A Theater Project, A Backstage Adventure from Plaza Media. It's telling the whole story of this big theater company. Well, I shouldn't say that it's a theater technical company of lighting and then design and then actually building theaters from the ground up. The whole story of that from 1957 on by Richard Pilbrow. And of course, if you're at all interested in getting into the backstage part of theater, the technical part, the lighting design, you got to get one of one of. Richard's older books, Stage Lighting and Stage Lighting Design. So thank you to Richard for being part of the show. Thank you to my wonderful darling wife, Joyce, for all her love and support all the time. And as I said, check here next week, 10 o'clock in the morning on Saturday, and see if we'll be doing a new edition of Dave's Gone by Uh, Again, not too sure I'm doing one next week, and then I'll be taking most of the rest of July off and not coming back until the tail end. But, yes, there will be more episodes and a whole new season of Dave's Gone By coming up in late summer and then into the early fall. Um, Wow, I think that that about does it. Please check davesgoneby.com for Whole but bunches of information about the show, and you can listen to this episode. Or if you want to share it with someone, someone's interested in theater, they want to hear the Pilbrow interview, or they love Bob Dylan, or whatever it is. We'll be posting this episode within the next twenty-four to forty-eight hours, barring technical difficulties. So definitely check dave'sgoneby.com. You can click; it's absolutely free. Listen to the archive of this and. Really, the, most of the past 356 episodes of Dave's Gone By. If you want to write to me, the email is davesgoneby at aol.com. If you want to see our MySpace page, it's myspace.com, and then search for Dave's Gone By for the playlist of this and other recent shows. For Rabbi Saul Solomon, always happy to have him as a guest with his rabbinical reflections In the neighborhood, he has his blog at shalomdammit.com, D-A-M-M-I-T, shalomdammit.com, and also you can add shalomdammit to your Twitter feed to get the rabbi's occasional and rather interesting tweets. Yeah, it is a new millennium indeed. Well, uh, time for us to leave the neighborhood. We're going to go out with one more song from Bruce Springsteen. This is from the Human Touch album. I think there's some Clarence in here. Sure hope so. This, appropriately, appropriately enough, is called The Long Goodbye.